Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 240 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday afternoon, August 7th, 2023. It's 100,000 degrees here and I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. I'm not in Austin. Um, <laughs> You're not... This is like a this is like a road trip edition of the NSL podcast because I'm in Boston. Ooh, you misspelled Austin and ended up in <laughs> in Boston. But uh, but you're coming home tomorrow. Uh, unfortunately, um, oh, it's gonna be great to have you back. I know, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to see you and to be back in the building. I'm not excited for the fact that it's 105 degrees for like what the 32nd day in a row now. The lengths this city will go to to try to get people to stop moving here. So it's like it's like we've now set an all-time record for consecutive days over a hundred. Stop moving here. And yet they keep it coming. Mm. Well, I'm glad you're getting back, and I hope you had a fun summer and are ready because orientation next week. I bet we're. I don't know this, but I bet we're making you do something. Are you doing like a mock class? I'm doing a mock class. I'm doing a society lunch i'm doing a faculty like book talk thing yeah our, our dean of students elizabeth bang she has me well booked for next week meanwhile monday is the first day of of elementary school for my five-year-old like Woo-hoo! august 14th i just want to go on record as saying august 14th too early for elementary school 100 percent. i agree no like we should nothing should happen until after labor day basically. <laughs> uh, um, the but that's exciting. Way. her first day of elementary school that's so awesome I'm excited, and Karen's gonna like lose her mind. These are well. <laughs> you think it's hard now? Wait till it's their last day of elementary school, oh, and then you're in for a real, real uh, emotional roller coaster. We actually we um so we you know we were in Mass- we we've been in Massachusetts most of the summer. We were up in Vermont for the last week, um, but on our way back today, we actually stopped by where Karen went to sleepaway camp. Um, no way. To take a tour so that Maddie, our older daughter, can check it out for maybe going next summer. Oh, I love that. What was Karen's reaction? Did it? Did, this is all so much smaller than I remember. Was it one of those? No, 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 no. Karen, Karen was Karen was like ready to roll roll up her sleeves and just participate in the activities and go claim a bunk um, in oh. one of the in one of the girls' bunks. She was she was she was in, she was all in. That's awesome. Well, yeah, I can't wait for the students to back around campus. It's today was the first day to begin to start feeling alive again around the building and then it's alive <laughs> law school well uh, meanwhile um, since last we recorded there's been another trump indictment or has there been two trump no i guess there's only been one trump indictment <laughs> there's a sentence you, you wouldn't have expected six years ago to be saying uh the former president there's been how many more indictments well we've got a doozy to talk about because this one really goes to the core of our interest in the topic just just as did the classified documents one but this one um which goes directly to the uh, the attempt to subvert the outcome of the election. Um, it is chock full of interesting legal complexities. Nothing too crazy, but given the the notoriety and and discussion that's out there, Steve, I think we the best service you and I can perform would be to just as we would with any other indictment, go through it, explain what are the statutes involved, and then what are the alleged facts that are said to constitute a violation. And then we can kick the tires on some of the theories of defense, possible defenses. And, <laughs> uh, there's some interesting ones. And, you know, what, what, what I think we should aspire to do, Steve, is I, th- I think we all agree and understand that there's some number of people who they already know what they know their final answer on this long before they ever saw what was in the indictment. That's, that's not who we're trying to talk to. 
I think what we should try to do is talk to those who are who perceive themselves to be genuinely open-minded about just wanting to know, like, what are these charged crimes? And what is it the government thinks it can prove beyond a reasonable doubt? And where do the chips fall if, if they can prove it? That seems to be the thing to do. Um, and, and how this is actually not about prosecuting him for core political speech? Well, like, so obviously one of the, the defenses we can anticipate will be made is a, uh, we're told by his lawyer, I think, that we can anticipate a First Amendment defense. So when we get, after yeah. we've laid out the charges and I'm just, the allegations. I'm just, I'm just reacting to my favorite neighborhood law professor's latest series of Fox News appearances. <laughs> I, I won't even ask who that might be because I don't want to compel you to identify your favorite law professor. Mm. Um, um, all right, shall we dive in? Yes. Well, um, let's name quickly what else we're going to talk about. I think we've got some... Uh, speaking of speaking of reduxes... Yeah, Al we, we've got another Guantanamo Al Balul DC Circuit action, and we've got the, the, Bob, Bobby. The, the DC Circuit has 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 decided the Al Balul case again. Again, not. again, it's like ground. We'll talk about what's going on there. We'll talk about another long running uh, piece, not not one we've talked about quite as often because we haven't talked about anything quite as often. But there is the uh, the civil suit by former Abu Ghraib detainee yep. Al Shamari. Uh, yeah, the Al Shamari case. We've got uh, Boy, that case has been going on forever. To, 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 there's been a lot of motions. <laughs> that case has been going on since 2008. You know what this is, Bobby? This is like Hollywood right now, right? We're just remake. It's just it's it's remake o'clock. Remake, but you know the the top two mid Barbenheimer, which I assume we're going to talk about in in. Uh, I haven't seen either Hollywood. of them, and I'm very sad about that fact. See, you're killing me. I was sure you would have at least have seen Barbie by now. Uh, you know, we've talked about trying to make a, it's, it. It just it hasn't worked out. Oh, I, I don't know. know what to say. I know. All right, that's good. I have to. But, I, but I do appreciate. I do appreciate your understanding of my family situation. That your 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 natural assumption was that despite my interests and my obsession with like strategic bombing during World War II, yes, in fact, Barbie's coming first. Right. Well, so I I have seen it. So when you get around to seeing it, we yes. can talk. Okay. I've not actually gotten to Oppenheimer yet. May when you get back, why don't you and I play hooky? Hopefully nobody's listening. That's for Ooh, sure they are. I like this. Uh, let's play hooky and go see Oppenheimer because I can't seem to get everyone else motivated. I like this plan. Yeah. Now, should we should we make it Turtleheimer and go see the turtles <laughs> and then Oppenheimer? Turtle Beheimer. <laughs> Teenage Mutant Barbieheimer. Something like go that. see all three back to back in like one marathon day at the draft house. Uh, we were in we were in Hanover, New Hampshire last night, and there's a cute little theater in Hanover um, that was playing, it has four movies and two of them were Barbie and Oppenheimer and they were timed so that you could do a double feature. Oh, that's awesome. I think that's wonderful. I was like, mom, dad, you take the kids. Karen, I'll see you tomorrow. What well, is, it is funny to have such a moment for Hollywood at the very moment that sag was out on strike and the whole, the, the, the issue does not seem to be resolving very quickly. No. But you and I are not, uh, are not a scripted program. And as we all know, when, when the writers and the actors are on strike, the, the amateurs take center stage in reality TV and other reality programming. And this, my friend, is a reality national security law podcast. So here we are, uh, very definitely unscripted and unprofessional. Oh, we planned this totally. Yes. All right. Uh, so all we right. Have- should, we, should we dive into you? Oh, wait, is something else you want to say? The update on the law of war uh, manual. We should flag that. That's That's very interesting. Um, that's, so we'll that's, like way, that's like way too substantive, though. It's way, that's that's actually clearly about national security law. Um, 
All of it is. All but, of it but is. hey, the more that we talk about that stuff, the less we can talk. The less we have to talk about the 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 team that plays in Queens. Uh, isn't that the one that used to have all these pitchers? Pitchers, you know, like uh, the highest payroll in Major League. Oh no, they still have the highest payroll in Major League Baseball. Uh, they are 11 games under 500 for the first time since like what 20 no 2019 there they they went oh for a road trip for the first time since 2017 life is good mm, i'm just glad the verlander's back with the astros yeah, well, the, the american league west what is going on over there <sighs> okay all right back to work back to work trumplandia friends come with us as we journey once again into the world known as Trumplandia. Oh wait, by the uh, way, can, wait, can I do one yeah. more one more sort of interruption before we get down? So, um, so you know, Karen's now like the superstar legal recruiter. Oh, yeah. So last week she placed, I think, the second person um, who came to her because of a reference to her and her job on this podcast. Um, <laughs> so if you're a lawyer and you're looking for a mid-career move, might I suggest reaching out to Karen Vladek at Whistler Partners. You know, if you're if you're a lawyer listening to this show, that's probably a sign that you've got not enough good things to do with your time, and maybe Seriously. you should talk or, to Karen. Or maybe you're just you know maybe you're looking for a move. Some people you never know. That's absolutely like, right. Like Justin Verlander. Oh, is she, did she place him? Does she specialize now in moving Mets pitchers? Oh my gosh! If she did, I could retire. <laughs> that would be amazing. All right, my friend. We've got All right, Trump. So the indictments brought in the uh, District of D.C. District of Columbia. Bobby, how dare they do that? Well, you know, uh, can you get a fair trial in D.C.? Oh, gosh, I guess we'll find out. But let's knock that one off real quick. Is there some provision in both the federal criminal venue statute and the Sixth Amendment and Article 3? Where the alleged offense occurred. Yeah, kind of like. That's supposed to be there. I mean. You know, the, listen, the defendant can waive what's this is called vicinage, right? The vicinage clause of the Sixth Amendment. It's clear, Bobby, the defendant can waive vicinage, but the prosecutor can't, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's like, well, we got to file where the alleged offense occurred, and funny. this is one where. All right. Well, anyway. yeah. So, and I think you and I both agree we won't even go into the analysis. There, this is not getting moved. No, although I will just say that I really did appreciate that uh, Trump's lawyer went on national television yes, uh, yesterday and said they want to move it to West Virginia because West Virginia is more diverse. Well, did there, he really there are that? lots of lovely things to say about West Virginia. I think West Virginia has a lot going for it. Let's just say diversity is not necessarily at the top of the list of, of, of qualities. Do you think he was trying to say ideologically diverse, though? It's not that either. <laughs> It's a serious question. I, look, I think this is baloney as a reason for moving the case, but just as a description of the politics, the, the district voting patterns versus West Virginia, I assume West Virginia is, you know, what? They got Manchin as a senator. I'm guessing that that's a relatively divided state. I don't think uh, Trump is. won West Virginia in 2020, uh, 69 to 29. Mm, yeah, so not so, <laughs> and not so close. But, um, and, yeah. And part, I mean, part of why Mansion is where he is. Part of why Mansion is in the because he's a, yeah. All right. Anyway, the important point is, legally speaking, none of that has is in any way a basis for moving where prosecution takes place. No, the, the political tendencies of the general population of the area is not a legit grounds. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we got these 
four charges. There could have been others. I think it's fair to say that some of the more, uh, shall we say, uh, ambitious potential charges, like say there could have been an, an incitement type of charge. There could have been other types of charges. Uh, insurrection. Yeah, exactly. I think it was very wise for the special counsel. Well, look, first of all, we don't know what may have been put to the grand jury that didn't emerge from the grand jury, but it seems likely that they didn't put this forward. But in any event, no such charges came out. What did come out? Some charges that I think as a general description are sort of run of the mill types of federal felonies. It's just the particular application here that's fascinating. So let's just name these first. And Steve, maybe we could go through each one without talking about the allegations and just say, like, here's what this one is. And here, here's the, the moving parts in this charge. Then let's go back through and, and put it and hang them on the skeleton of the case. Sure. OK, so um, let's start by noting that there's four charges. Three of them are conspiracy charges, meaning that they are alleging that there's an illegal agreement between Trump and others. Uh, to commit some particular offense, as opposed to charging the offense itself. Correct. There's one charge that's the actual direct offense itself. So maybe start with that. Um, it is a federal crime to obstruct or and, and to attempt to obstruct an official government proceeding, such as the proceedings of Congress, especially the uh, meeting of Congress to conclude the electoral college process, for example. Um, so that's 18 U.S. Code Section 1512 uh, C, uh, sub 2. So, so that's one ordinary federal criminal offense. And then there's a charge here both of alleging Trump violated that statute and a separate conspiracy to violate that same statute. So there's two charges right there. There's a separate conspiracy charge under the heading of conspiring to defraud the United States government, and that's 18 U.S. Code Section 371. And there is a third conspiracy charge, 18 U.S. Code 241, uh, a conspiracy to deprive people of their right to vote or to have their vote actually counted. The right to vote doesn't count much if it doesn't include actually counting the vote. So you've got those various hooks. And, and for those who aren't uh, familiar with federal criminal law or criminal law in general, um, the idea that there might be a variety of federal offenses that seem to all be hooked onto the same alleged conduct, that's not out of the ordinary at all. You could have a course of conduct that simultaneously violates a whole bunch of different laws. And when you have a system like state criminal law or federal criminal law, where there's lots and lots of possible offenses, it's pretty common to find that the indictment can include a lot of different charges that all center around the same alleged story. And, 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 and under the, the double jeopardy clause does not preclude multiple charges arising out of the same factual nexus. The critical question is whether the offenses are the same. Which exactly. Means, do the offenses have the same elements? Right. And, it, and it's not uncommon for there to be federal crimes or state crimes where you could have two or three separate charges or more where they're really close to overlapping because some of the elements are very much the same and they're applied to the same fact pattern. But, you know, you could be found guilty of some and not others. Now, here, the indictment tells a story about a set of activities that are described as all part and parcel of one overarching goal, which is to subvert the outcome of the election and to keep Trump in office. Uh, and there's there's complexities from there. There are I would describe the storytelling as saying that there were at least three, maybe four 
separate pathways to try to get there are uh, mostly being pursued simultaneously. It's not that one crime goes with each one of those. Any of those stories or all of them together are all relevant for each of the charges. And so the way the indictment is set up is it, it has the usual uh, introductory stuff. And then it starts laying out the first charge and includes all the factual allegations. And then for the later charges, it just incorporates by reference the same story. Right. Yep. So why don't we let's unpack the charges. Uh, I don't know if you have a particular order you'd prefer to go in. Nope. All right. Let's let's just kind of go in order with uh, the conspiracy to defraud the United States. Section 371. It's pretty straightforward. It's a crime for two or more people to agree to, quote, defraud the United States and skipping a few irrelevant words in any manner and for any purpose. All right. That that if that sounds broad to you, it's because it is. It is a broad offense. Um, so generally, what do you have to prove under the statute? You've got to show there's an agreement involving at least you know, one other person. Um, the agreement has to involve the use of lies or trickery or, trickery or deceit. That's the, the fraud element. And then there's the question of how it must pertain to the U.S. government. Obviously, a conspiracy to defraud the U.S. government that's about making money off the U.S. government, clearly that would be covered. Everyone everyone accepts that. That's sort of the what you might call the obvious core. Um, I imagine there are some people who are coming to this with no knowledge of how this old statute has long been interpreted who might think, well, that's all it is. If they're not trying to steal money, then somehow it's not a, a fraud scheme. Um, but it's been held for basically more than a century, I believe, that it's not just about taking money. It's also fraudulent efforts to obstruct or disrupt the functioning of legitimate government functions. And so there's, for example, there's a, there's a 1924 Supreme Court decision. Uh, Chief Justice Taft wrote it in Hammerschmidt versus United States, saying that the language we just described, quote, means primarily to cheat the government out of property or money, but it also means to interfere with or obstruct one of its lawful government functions. It is not necessary. I skipped a few words there. It's not necessary that the government shall be subjected to property or pecuniary loss by the fraud, but only that its legitimate official action and purpose shall be defeated, etc. So that's a century old interpretation of the statute. Steve, I think it's really not a serious dispute that engaging in fraud to prevent some government function from occurring, if done as an agreement where there's an act in furtherance of the agreement, that can be a Section 371 violation. Um, I, I, I think that's true, too. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So no dispute there. Um, but, the, but the critical point there is that's not about speech, right? That's about conduct. Okay. Yeah. No, we definitely need to wrestle with like, so how did all these speech arguments go in there? But to foreshadow that a little bit. So we're hearing a lot or seeing a lot of commentary saying, but what about the extent to which what's really, you know, the characterization that what's happening here is, is prosecution of speech. Um, it goes without saying that words are used in effectuating fraud offenses. <laughs> in I mean, Words are used in effectuating lots of offenses. I mean, Hey, give me your, give me your money or else I'll beat you up. Right. So it's not protected the, speech. The fact that there's speech, the fact that there is words being used, obviously does not mean that it's protected speech. Therefore there's no federal crimes. It's hard. It's very, very few frauds are perpetrated without the use of extensive language. But we'll come back. We'll come back to. So what, what, if anything, is there to say about First Amendment arguments? We'll, we'll come back to that. Um, 
we should probably note just a little bit about the other offenses as well. So we've got the uh, both the direct violations and the alleged uh, the the direct violation and the conspiracy to violate Section fifteen twelve. So this is um, uh, corrupt disruption of an official proceeding. If I can boil it down to that. Um, an official proceeding, again, this sounds a lot like what we just talked about with defrauding the United States. Here, the hook is not that there was a fraud element, a deceit or trickery or lie element, but the word that's used in the statute for, for the uh, means of disruption is the word corruptly. So, Steve, there's, this is, again, one that I think people who don't know their federal criminal law might come to this and think, well, I don't know. It sounds like it involves what? Bribery? You got to bribe somebody? That didn't seem to be the case here. Well, that's that's also not how this statute has long been interpreted. Um, there are a variety of pattern and jur jury instructions out there on this one. They typically say something along the lines of corruptly signifies consciousness of, of wrongdoing, that sort of thing. Um, the idea is that it is perfectly okay to, you know, let's say that the proceeding that's in question is I don't know, a grand jury proceeding investigating you. Um, it's one thing if you're talking to somebody and you're trying to, well, actually, grand jury is a bad example. Let's say some situation where there's an element of voluntariness and whether and to what extent some other person, a witness, is willing to talk to a government investigator. Um, you can say, like, oh, I really wish you wouldn't. I'm going to try to persuade you not to do it. Um, if you're coercing somebody not to voluntarily cooperate with the government as part of a official proceeding, if you're trying to get them to do something unlawful, those things trigger the corruption trigger. Mere persuasion, mere ordinary uh, engagements that are lawful and permissible um, can't be counted as corruption and therefore obstruction of an official proceeding. Uh, anything you would amend on that? Um, no. Okay. And then I, last, I'm Monty to your uh, to your Bob Uecker in this in this, there you go. In this episode. Well, okay, do, do, so last we have the conspiracy to deprive people of their voting rights. Now, you want to say a little bit about like where that there's an interesting background here. Yes. Um, so right. So the as as uh, there were some commentators on social media like you know oh my God they're charging him under a statute from 1866 as if like you know the age of a statute's. The, the point. Um, so actually, the, this language comes from a, the Civil Rights Act of 1871, um, Bobby, known also as the Ku Klux Klan Act, right? A statute that was designed quite deliberately to turn it into a federal crime when there were organized efforts, whether by public actors, Bobby, or private actors, to suppress or prevent or sort of frustrate the enforcement of some of the new rights that the Constitution actually had conferred in the 14th Amendment. Um, and this was actually meant to be a far more robust weapon for the federal government than I think it's been used as historically, but it has been used, especially since the beginning of the modern civil rights movement, um, to charge different levels of officials and private parties, Bobby. And so that's the, I think the, the, the idea here. So the, uh, I, I think it's fair to say the following, but tell me if you disagree. It's, it's obviously the case that if, if you have an indictment that talks about a particularized instance of, you know, on, on this occasion, this one person was was prevented from going to vote, et cetera, or there was an attempt to you know, destroy the ballots or something like that, that, no question this particular statute would be applicable there. What becomes interesting in this case, and we can talk about this more in a moment as we start to develop the factual allegations, is 
um, it's it's just the scale of it, right? It's the allegation that the plot in question was designed to have the effect of having so many people's seven states worth of at least, if not more, seven states worth of people's votes negated, right? Or at least uh, the the majority who voted and prevailed in those states. And so it's not it's not zeroed in and targeted on a particular case, and that's what makes it seem a right. little different from like the run of the mill cases. I, but not just that, Bobby. Also, like it wasn't just the sort of the will of the majority of the voters in those seven states. It was the very process that the legislatures of those states had adopted for choosing the presidential electors in that state, right? And so it's subverting not just the will of the voters; it's subverting the will of the legislatures. Does that part, so the will of the voters part clearly, I think, links up with Section 241, yep. obviously, very clearly. Right. Does the does the the idea of disrupting the intended function of the, the system the legislators created, I think that works pretty well with the other statutes. Do you think it maybe doesn't work so well with the... Yeah, the- unless, I mean, so, so I think it's it depends on how you argue it, Bobby. I mean, right, so... <laughs> This gets into a metaphysical question about how the Constitution protects the right to vote um, and sort of, you know, the dirty little secret that it doesn't. Um, And so if you believe that at the very least, the Constitution protects the right of individuals to vote by the method prescribed by the legislatures of their states. Yeah. Right. That's the point. That's where I think the subverting the, the legislature, that's where I think this matters. Because the, the two of them come together. Yes. All we say is the thing that Section 241 is trying to protect through the lens of, of criminal federal criminal law is something we shorthand as the right to vote. But that carries with it, like whatever process each particular state has constructed. Um, and, and yes, some people are in the background saying, like, wait, where, what about the 15th Amendment? Well, there's that, too. But. I think what we're talking about here is just what's what are the meets and bounds of this. One well, and, and, and indeed, and indeed, I, mean, I, I actually think that there are non-frivolous arguments that at least some of this has racial undertones in some jurisdiction, right? I mean that that in at least some of those seven states, Bobby Trump's margin of defeat, um, I think, is is reflective of his unpopularity with particular racial minority groups. But right, it's a lot harder to show and the requisite intent to show a Fifteenth Amendment violation in this space. You know, there's a lot of allegations in the indictment, and and if, if proven, they're they're horrific, and they sure sound bad. They don't they don't go there, right? Like it exactly. none of the quoted stuff. No one's no one's alleging that. Um, okay, so I think we've we've kind of sketched what the offenses are. So just to back up, what you've got here is a federal grand jury coming back and saying that they found sufficient evidence in their initial investigation to go to court. And the prosecution believes it's going to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Donald Trump uh, corruptly obstructed official proceedings, that is the the whole electoral college process, or attempted and conspired and attempted to do so. That likewise and very similarly, but with an element of fraud, effectively attempted to defraud the United States in the sense of using fraud to disrupt those same functions. And then lastly, that these these same activities also function as a conspiracy to deprive at least some people of their effective right to vote. That's the nature of the offenses charged. Yes. And can I just say one more thing? Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is maybe an obvious point, but I want to say it out loud. The case does not revolve around the idea that it was the physical violence at the Capitol that was intended to subvert the electoral process, right? I mean, like that, that comes toward the end. What's that? 
I said that's a very important point. Right. That like the argument is not Trump is guilty because he didn't do enough to stop the physical violence on January 6th. The argument is that long before January 6th, Trump was actively involved in a highly coordinated effort, right, to have fraudulent electors um, sort of swoop in through whatever means, through whatever process, and there are a couple different avenues, right, and be declared the proper electors of those states. And that that's sort of a much more legalistic conspiracy um, than is sort of portrayed in the media, right, where, where like the conspiracy was not just like what he said at the rally and his tweets on the afternoon of January 6th. The conspiracy was his involvement in all of the steps that had been taken to that point to try to have a meaningful alternative that would get in the way of the certification on January 6th. I think that's right. And it's it's worth emphasizing that the the story of the, the violence on January 6th, yes, it's, it's in the narrative and it's really relevant context and it's leveraged a little bit here and there as further circumstantial evidence. But by and large, it's a sideshow. The entire indictment and all the charges would could still be there and would have... I would argue uh, the, about the exact same shot at getting the conviction with no mention of the violence itself. Yep. yep. Um, all right. So let's talk about how, what is this narrative then? If it's not a narrative about him going out on the ellipse that morning or that afternoon and, and uh, inciting people, what what is the claim? And as Steve says, and, and I think this is a very descriptively accurate term, it, it's a legalistic description, but that's not a pejorative description. I know some people no. would use it that way. It's it's a it's a claim that here are the elements of the statutes we just went through. Here are a whole series of things where a lot of Trump administration officials appear to have testified to the grand jury. And also they clearly have text messages and emails and so forth. So there's all this firsthand and, and documented yep. communications showing what this, the indictment packages as four distinct lines of effort towards this same goal. And the goal is to make sure that at least, if not at a minimum, that on January 6th, the vice president does not, and the, the process does not conclude with the certification and the, the recognition and conclusion of the electoral college process. And ideally maybe goes in the entirely opposite direction. So what are those four different pathways? So uh, line of effort number one, what is described as a scheme to try to persuade a wide variety of state officials across seven targeted states to do things that would cause those states ultimately to send in pro-Trump electors instead of the proper uh, Biden electors, because these were all states that Biden won the vote, and therefore the electors should have gone to him and ultimately did go to him. So there's a plan that used, as the document alleges, a variety, not just of just sort of direct coercion or, or pressure, but much, much more legally importantly, falsehoods. Now we hear, we come here to the first time and say, this is going to be a case about mens rea, the yep. mental state, uh, the mental state of Donald Trump. And, and this really, the whole thing, Steve, I think basically boils down to, can the jury be persuaded beyond a reasonable doubt that Trump knew that the things that he and his agents like Giuliani and others were, were saying and doing knew they were false and the and the bite of the indictment if you know one thing factually about it is this a whole host of senior conservative trump administration officials clearly have testified and we have writing showing that they were repeatedly saying to him 
that the various factual claims he kept bandying about and his agents were bandying about were false. Yep. There was no evidence behind them. And right. Then, not, but this is this is more, not just not just unproven, right? But affirmatively false. Affirmatively disproven after thorough investigation by the relevant officials, yep. entities. Yeah. Um, it's really something, and, and like that's the most important thing. There's so many people who have strong opinions are not going to read this deal. If you read it and you really read carefully, what you'll find are all these figures. They're not named in there, but it's pretty clearly, you know, probably chief of staff. Mark Meadows, it's it's the White House Counsel, it's the White House Deputy Counsel, it's the Acting Attorney General, it's the Acting Deputy Attorney General, it's the head of the Office of Legal Counsel. It's folks on his own campaign team. Yeah, several of the senior most people in the the actual campaign team, not these sort of cast of unusual characters who sort of emerge as this like um, what what's the phrase they use? Elite strike force legal team. <laughs> wow. Um, the Kraken the Kraken done got released. So, so something got released. Um, okay. So, so sh- wait, wait, wait. Episode title: Something got released. <laughs> That's pretty funny. All right, I'm writing that down. Um, so, so line of effort number one: use knowingly using false information to try to induce and show, you know, try to trick these various state officials into. Uh, you know, produce trying to take steps that would eventually hopefully lead to a different slate of electors being sent to DC. Uh, that's scheme one. Scheme two, um, going to people in those states to get them to serve as false electors, as 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 sort of alternative fact electors, if you will. Um, and then and not just to like agree to do it, but then to really go through the motions to try to simulate it as best they could. And then and allow you know put their names on things and sign things. And by the way, it's really clear from the indictment some of these, some of these people were were clearly tricked into doing this. Yeah, some of the and state think, officials. And this I think will be one of the. If you're wondering, like, are there some things that even if everything else is contestable, this seems like super prosecutable. For sure, they seem to have like compelling evidence that some of these uh, alternative electors did this believing because they were told that their activity would only result in a fraudulent slate or an alternative slate being sent to DC if they won some of their court cases, which right. contingent, con- contingent electors, right. When in fact the people orchestrating this and here, Giuliani just, you know, he, he has so much liability. It's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's identified in the thing only as co-conspirator one, but it's like it's widely clearly him. Yeah. Um, he, He's in serious trouble here. He's going to have to. Um, all six of the co-conspirators, uh, who I think it's clear, and it's clear who all six of them are, are in yeah. some pretty serious trouble. They, uh, the Eastman and Giuliani, Clark too, but especially Eastman and Giuliani, like really in deep trouble here. Wait, can we can we talk about Jeff Clark for a second, or you want you want to get to that later? Let's, let's get to him because because he comes up with one of the other schemes. So so far, conspirator number four scheme to trick people. You know they're trying to trick people like they you know try to convince brian kemp secretary of state in georgia, in georgia yep. very conservative guy who's like no none of this is true what you're saying like no 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 here's this thing and they were saying things that they had just been told were absolutely not true but they were still trying to use the falsehoods to try to get him to take different steps which he would not to his everlasting credit he would not take there's that there's the attempt there's the trickery of the electors themselves um, there's a third scheme involving an attempt to persuade the acting AG and deputy AG 
to get the Justice Department to have them themselves issue formal DOJ uh, endorsements of these falsehoods. Well, this we knew, I mean, this was this was the draft letter, right? That Jeff Clark had been trying to get them to send to Georgia and Pennsylvania and other legislatures, and and to make false claims about DOJ having investigated and found evidence that there is real cause for concern when in fact that wasn't true. Right. So that's that's just wait, crazy. That's wait, just Bobby, it gets worse. So to me, like the the point when I'm reading the indictment and I literally just like fall out of my chair is paragraph 81, which is on page 30 of the PDF. I'm just going to read it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if you, do, you, would you would you allow me to just replace co-conspirator four with Jeff Clark? Wait, wait, wait. Okay, we did not orchestrate this. I don't know if the video will show this. Wait, let me see. Bobby has. Paragraph four eighty one circled with a with a with an angry face emoji next to it. It's got the like uh, on there. Um, so paragraph eighty one, especially for national security law people, is like a a y f k m paragraph. So I'm just going to read it um, if I can. Yep. On the afternoon of January 3rd, Jeff Clark spoke with a deputy White House counsel. The previous month, the deputy White House counsel had informed the defendant that there is no world, there is no option in which you do not leave the White House on January 20th. Now, the same deputy White House counsel tried to dissuade Jeff Clark from assuming the role of acting attorney general. The dep- So far, so good. Whatever. The deputy White House counsel reiterated to Jeff Clark that there had not been outcome determinative fraud in the election and that if the defendant remained in office nonetheless, there would be, quote, riots in every major city in the United States, unquote. Clark responded, quote, well, comma, deputy White House counsel in brackets, comma, that's why there's an insurrection act. Yes. So just to be clear, just to make clear what that shorthand is, the Insurrection Act is the statute by which presidents have been delegated the authority to call out the military to respond to unlawful obstructions and combinations, basically to sort of put down peace, you know, sort of protests in this context. Jeff Clark is saying the Insurrection Act exists so that when we stay in office illegitimately, the president can send the army to take care of those, you know, rabble-rousing protesters. I So, as you saw, I mean, I had no idea you were going to quote from this. I had circled that language and literally felt obliged to draw in the, the emoji on the side. Um, yeah, this is some nutty stuff. I mean, I would put it a little differently because I, I don't know the, the, the prompt to him saying that was saying there'd be riots in every major city. And so the he didn't say like there, there will be protests. He said there'd be riots. But nonetheless, like we don't have to go to the level of it suppressing peaceful protests. The point is the guys, the, the, the good person says, hey, there's no evidence of this. If he tries to stay on, this is going to cause a hell to break loose. Like, and the answer is not we'll use like, the military. Yeah, we'll just use the military. Like that's that's what you got the military for. It's like guys, this right. We'll use the military. We will use the, mil- we will use the to be we, America. Right. We will use the military to ensure the success of our coup. Yeah, that's that's the way. It yeah, is. I mean that is. I don't think that is an uncharitable reading of what Jeff Clark is saying. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm saying. Like you know, if if people and if people try to try to do something about it, we'll just use the military to stop them. Well, again, <sighs> this that's. This is not okay, Bobby. How are there There's still people? How are there still people who are going to vote for Trump? Well, this, this level of detail we're going. To, first of all, 
there are all these people who I think are just are not prepared to accept any of this is actually happening, uh, which raises an interesting question. Just to digress a little bit, should all things setting aside what will happen, would it be better if the trial were testified? I mean, sorry, televised. Yeah. Or televised. It would actually be better. It's never going to happen. Would it be better, or would it turn into some sort of you know complete you know circus? It would be better, like the January six hearings. It would be better. Yeah, yeah, but it's not going to happen. I think you're right. Um, and to, to, just to be clear to folks, why it's not going to happen, right? The district judge cannot buy. So there is a standing, very, very significant limit on the power of district courts to televise proceedings, especially in criminal cases. And district judges have virtually no power on their own to transcend those limits. I mean, there's actually, you know, Bobby, the 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 most famous recent example I can think of, you know, Vaughn Walker, the San Francisco district judge, wanted to televise the Prop 8 trial, which was a civil trial, right, about 10 years ago. And the Supreme Court slapped him down six ways from Sunday. I yeah. mean, it's just, yeah. it's just not, it's not something that the rules really readily permit for. Right. So it's not going to be some sort of uh, Lantito, you know, O.J. Simpson no. trial situation that the whole nation's like watching all the time. But the coverage hopefully will be, I'm sure, will be constant. Um, so there was yet another scheme or another, a fourth thread in the whole Sorry, deal. I took us or, down a Jeff Clark rabbit hole. No, no, it's, it was good to have done it. So, so again, to recap, scheme thread of the overarching scheme number one, try to trick and induce the state uh, officials. Number two, uh, try to induce and trick and line up those electors. Number three, try to pressure and get DOJ leaders to do stuff that they absolutely refuse to do. And, and there is the whole thing. We already knew this is true, but it's still vivid to read it, where um, Jeff Clark works to persuade Trump to basically can the acting AG and the acting deputy AG and put, put Jeff Clark in charge, and then he'll do all these things. And it, it appears Trump agreed at one point to do that. But then when everyone got into the Oval Office to talk about it, Everybody, including all the White House counsel lawyers and the and the OLC head and all the rest, said we're all we're all resigning. Like nobody's going to stand for this. And Trump backed down at that point. Um, the last scheme was the 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 plan, the attempt to put direct pressure on Vice President Pence himself, and there was a lot of pressure put on Vice President Pence. Now, no, they're not being charged as separate conspiracies, these four things. These are just four different simultaneous storylines. The allegation is there was one giant conspiracy, violated several different federal laws in the ways we just described. Steve, I don't think there's any question based on the extensive quotations that show that between the documentary evidence of texts and other uh, you know, digital records, and the witness testimony that comes from all these senior Trump administration officials who testified to the grand jury, there's no question I think they can show as a matter of actus reus, the, the, the action elements of all this story. They're, they're gonna be able to show all this no problem. They'll prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. The interesting question, as it's I said earlier, is mental state. So what is your, what is your take on whether it's gonna be hard uh, to prove Trump's mental state as knowing that he was leveraging falsehoods and so forth. So I think I think two things are true. I think the prosecution is going to have a whole bunch of incredibly persuasive witnesses, right, who are going to provide pretty powerful evidence that Trump knew, um, right? And then the question becomes, 
Like the best, you know, in a case like this, Bobby, before we get to jury nullification, which we have to talk about, right? In a case like this, usually the best way to actually defeat the government's mens rea argument is to put the defendant on the stand and have him say, like, you know, I messed up. Like, you know, it was just, I got bad advice. I, you know, I really thought I want, like, it's to actually have the defendant go up and create a reasonable doubt in the jury's mind about whether he really did know the things that the prosecution's witnesses said he knew. And all I have to say is the lawyer who puts Donald Trump on the stand in a case like this is a lawyer who's getting disbarred tomorrow. Right. I mean, well, can, you ima- can you imagine Trump getting cross-examined? But does that mean they won't be able to put on an advice? So there's there's the evidentiary. It's not really a mistake. It's not a mistake of fact defense. It's a it's a question. Of the defense putting on circumstantial evidence, or maybe you know, there, there only is circumstantial evidence when it comes to your actual state of mind. I mean, you can you can purport to say what you were believing then, but it ultimately. There's no direct engagement with this. I mean, short uh, of short of a contemporaneous diary where you say, "I've I'm doing this thing because of X." I wouldn't even I wouldn't even trust that, right? Um, <laughs> and, then there's, and then there's the I got bad the, the advice of counsel defense. Right. Now, I th- so I think you're right. Like these, this case is all about these defenses. The defense that tr- the theme of Trump's defense is going to be like, look, whatever the rest of us think, you got to understand this guy lives in his own reality. And however crazy it was, he really just believed this stuff. I'm surrounded by sycophants, which, by the way, no one will have any trouble believing. Well, and and then it's very interesting because then it's so powerful that so much of the testimony is his are his own senior most people who who rode the train with him all the way to the end. Right. These are not Democrats out to get Trump. I mean, Bill Barr has said he's willing to testify against Trump at the trial. I mean... One of the most powerful moments will be, assuming they can replicate it, it clearly happened in front of the grand jury. So Mike Pence, who did not testify to the January 6th committee, did, of course, all, many of these people who would not testify in front of Congress out of executive privilege concerns, did, of course, testify, as everyone must, to the grand jury. And he apparently testified that when he said, he, you know, I cannot, I cannot throw the election to you during the, you know, the January 6th meeting, uh, Trump said, you're too honest. Yep, and 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 that is a that is such a <laughs> bite-sized made-for-TV moment. That's right. the if, kind of, if if Mike Pence gets up on the stand in a federal courtroom and and repeats that, right? Mike Pence, who literally like rode the train up and rode it all the way to the end and, and hooked his whole life onto this guy. Yep. yep. Um, and you know, in many ways, it it well, we can talk about Pence a bunch. That yeah. It's very interesting. You know, whatever else, you and I talked a lot over the years when Trump was in office about the question of these people, you know, whether it was Secretary Mattis or others, you know, what do we make of people who are in right, some ways, the, the grownups who stayed in to minimize harm. And there are a lot of people who, you know, say you, you shouldn't have done that. Um, whatever else we say about Pence at that final moment he he sure did the right thing it's the same thing it's the same thing about the doj and white house lawyers who are in the oval office on january 3rd Mm -hmm. i've said said this before like you know i don't think it redeems all the bad things they enabled up to that point but i sure am glad they were there at that point some of them some of them you know i think it varies from person to person i think you know pence in his case very politically enabled uh 
Donald Trump. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about some of the, the White House lawyers at that. No, but Barr. I mean, oh yeah, but I'm thinking about like Pat Philbin. Yeah, or Steve Engel. Yeah, okay, that's fair. But so so um, before I forget, I mean, I think there are two other points to make really quickly before we move on to sort of where th- what what happens now, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so f- first, we should talk about the First Amendment, right? And then second, we should talk about president absolute immunity and this Nixon versus Fitzgerald canard. Okay, let's not. Okay, let's name these as various theories of likely defense. We've already kicked the tires on one in. The big one, right? I mean, mens rea is clearly the the yeah. best possible sort of conventional legal defense available to charges like this. Exactly. And this isn't about like, how does this precedent work or what that legal concept? This is about credibility and jury determinations. This is a classic trial battle and in who gets to testify. I'm sure Mike Pence, Mark Meadows and all these people. Are well, and, and also, and, and are any of those six co-conspirators, right? Are, are, are they named that way in the indictment because Smith is trying to leverage them into testifying, right? Well, turning sure. its evidence. I think it's been publicly reported that Giuliani uh, participated in what they call a queen for the day proffer yeah. session. That's, that's basically like, look, you're, you're potentially going to get indicted. Uh, if you want to, if you want to play ball, one thing you can do is come in and it'll be sort of a, you're the queen for the day. Nothing can happen to you because of what you're going to say, tell us what you know. So, so a lot of the story probably, you know, reflects some of that too. Um, a lot of their willingness to play ball, of course, is going to depend on their thoughts of, well, how quickly might this thing resolve against me versus what are the chances Trump's the nominee? Right. And, or, and, or and, 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 and he wins. Subset of the candidates who might alternatively be the nominee who might just pardon all of us, which, um, you know, would be pretty gross. Okay. So, so we have the factual dispute. That's actually where I like, I think this thing really hinges. I agree. Um, you've got, uh, you've got other possible claims. So let's talk about the one you mentioned a moment ago. Like, well, he was president at the time, so can't be a crime. What's so, the right? What's, so how do you analyze that? If the president does it, it's not illegal. Where have I heard that before? Um, it's self-refuting, but explain why it's wrong. Okay. So, um, this is actually the subject of today's uh, issue of One First. So if people want to, st- if you're still not subscribed to the One First newsletter, stevevlodic.substack.com. <laughs> um, I wrote that last night in the dark in our hotel room, I just want to say. Um, awesome. So so the, this all rises, in, I mean, the, the, the argument such as it is requires sort of mashing together two different things and hoping no one notices that there are different features here. So thing one is the Supreme Court's 1982 decision in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, where the court held that a president or former president has absolute immunity from civil damages for anything he did within the, quote, outer perimeter of his official duties as president, right? Um, George W. Bush authorizes the invasion of Iraq in his role as commander in chief, can't sue him in tort. civil damages. Period. No, right, no tort suit because of abuses the United States committed allegedly in Iraq. Okay. Um, thing number two, right, is the by now familiar 2000 OLC memo concluding that a sitting president cannot be criminally indicted. Right. Um, if you mix these things together, right, some of the president's lawyers and some of his supporters have gone out and said, therefore, it follows that a president cannot, that a former president cannot be criminally prosecuted for acts undertaken while in office. Um, the, there are a bunch of problems with this argument, 
Um, problem number one is that's not what Nixon versus Fitzgerald says, right? Nixon versus Fitzgerald doesn't even say the president has absolute immunity for everything, right? It says for civil damages, for acts committed within the outer perimeter of his official duties. Bobby, I think it should be the case that like a coup is not within the outer perimeter of a president's official duties. Um, so even on the broadest reading of Nixon versus Fitzgerald, I'm not sure how it would apply. There's also the point that Nixon versus Fitzgerald is about civil damages, not any other kind of civil or criminal relief. Justice Powell's opinions, as, as I talk about in today's newsletter, goes on and on about the alternative remedies that are available, like impeachment. Funny how these are the same folks who are arguing that you can't impeach a former president. Um, heads we win, tails you lose, right? And then sir, lastly, and on the OLC memo, Listen, say what you will about the OLC memo, and plenty has been said. The entire memo's focus is on how a criminal prosecution, Bobby, of a sitting president would effectively incapacitate the office, right? That argument has nothing to do with a criminal prosecution of a former president. Exactly. No, this is, it's not a serious argument. Like, I, don't, I don't recall ever hearing someone previously claim that presidents simply couldn't be prosecuted forever later. right yeah. um, like, you know, it's like a freebie right. like you, you can commit whatever crimes you want now you can, right. like vaguely connected to the fact that you were president at the time now it's true i mean so so maybe in a world in which we all agree that you could impeach a former president right we could have it would be a, a closer call it is true that the supreme court has never conclusively answered this question, because it's never come up before, there's never been a prosecution of a former president. But just because the Supreme Court has not answered a question does not mean it's a close question, right? Like that, you know, the there two things could be true. There could be no express precedent on point, and yet it could be obvious what the answer is. No, that's exactly right. All okay, right. So and then, I think the First Amendment issues, Bobby, are even weaker because all of the First Amendment noise that's out there is based on a not careful reading of the indictment. If, if, or, if, or, or a yeah. bad faith depiction of what's in the indictment. Or, Correct. Like, okay. like, people, I don't think... Some people know darn well that what's in the indictment, all those details we went... And, and just to be clear, because I don't think we said this earlier, you know, there's there's pages upon pages of quotations and witness testimony and documentary evidence that describes you know, phone calls in which someone, you know, whether it's Giuliani or, or Trump or Eastman, someone who's just been told again for the umpteenth time there's no evidence this particular fact you keep citing is true we looked into it it turns out it's not true and then they would use it again knowing it was false and in some cases some of them seem to be on the hook with witness testimony showing they knew it was false yep um and and so it's not about the fact it's not about generally saying like i i believe this or i believe that Right. It's not about public speeches and so forth. Nope. And it's not and it's not about like, you know, I'm being prosecuted because I, you know, encourage my supporters to keep fighting. Like, no, that is not what this is about. Like this is about the fraud. This is about the various schemes Trump was deliberately part of. Right. To yeah. frustrate the democratic operation of the, the peaceful transition of power. So, you know, there's going to be an actual trial. But in the meantime, we're already, we're already in the middle of the public opinion, you know, kind of. It's trial's not the right word, but it feels like that, right? It's taking the story yes. and trying to fight it out to control beliefs. And of course, one of the I think one of the things it, the argument is really weak in actual trial. Yes. Uh, it's going to have all kinds of legs and is having all kinds of legs in public discourse where it's not about what's in the indictment. You just you get to describe sort of in your tweet or on your show or in your interview 
a, a caricature, a straw man of what's in the indictment. Because it, it, sound, yeah. I'm sorry, Bobby. Just to, and, and to make it sound like it's just criminalizing right. uh, the expression of your uh, – well, it's even – it's even uh, even if you we, make it we, more nuanced. We didn't prosecute the Democratic members of Congress who objected to the 2000 and 2004 election results, dot, 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 right? Like it's that argument. Right, right. Like, yeah, it's, so in, in there is a kernel of a real issue there in that we do not want to go down the path of, in, in hotly contested post-election contested outcome scenarios where as, as everybody who's ever been even tangentially involved in that knows that there's all kinds of maneuvering going on in the courtroom and checking out what's going on. You don't want to turn it on to some situation where everyone can be prosecuted. But the idea that what's alleged in the indictment, what's actually in there, in which they're going to go to court and prove based on the testimony of all these senior Republican conservative officials, um, the idea that that's just normal post-election fighting and wrestling, it, it's not so. It's, it's not just not so. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I'll say, so, and we should talk briefly about the jury pool and nullification, but the only thing I'll say is... Um, the keep in mind that in the Mar-a-Lago document, you know, obstruction case, right? The first indictment is not the current indictment, and so right, the, it is also very possible that these forty-five pages are going to be superseded in not that much time by additional information, additional charges, additional you know indictments, perhaps against the co-conspirators, like. I will just say, like, at least to this point, the way the special counsel and his team have operated, like, I don't think this is their only salvo in this right. case. Superseding indictments are very common in, in criminal law, and we can yes. easily do one here. Um, all right. All right. So, we talk about, uh, so, so the case was assigned to Judge Tanya Chutkin, um, a, yes, a, a, an Obama appointee, a black woman, which, of course, is going to really, you know, go very, very well with President Trump, um, right? Bobby, we've talked about Judge Chutkin before in the context of some of the national security cases that come across her docket. I think the general sense is that she is a very highly regarded judge. She is not a judge who I think is viewed as any kind of outlier on the ideological spectrum, unless you are of the view that any Democratic appointee is. I think that uh, in, as to all the judges in all these cases and in, across the board in general, I would always much prefer it if everybody would just, you know, form your views based on the actual rulings and determinations. And that goes for Judge Cannon as well. Um, and so we'll see. But I, so far, you know, it's all been perfectly normal. Um, you know, the, yeah, we're going we're gonna to have a fight over a protective order pretty quickly because the, the president has already. Yeah, <laughs> that's going to be wild. You know, you know that's going to be a constant source of friction. I guess uh, right about now as we're recording they're, you know, they're putting their papers in opposition, I guess, to the scope, of, the proposed scope of the order. We'll see what happens there, but he's going to have to, he's, you know, defendants are not permitted to try to rally the public constantly against uh, the, the due and ordinary course of the proceedings. So there's going to be some amount of, of constraint. Now, of course, the game, if, if you're really a serious lawyer as part of the defense team, your game has got to be delay. Delay is everything. Because the other arguments are no good. Um, and so I would think that they're going to look for every chance to fight, 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 fight. That the, uh, Their duty as zealous advocates you know, compels them to do that. I'm sure they will. So if there is a constraint, I'm sure they'll be constantly looking to kind of create issues with that. Looking for edge issues, something he might put out there in social media that push the boundaries and might result in some further proceedings. Um, 
What do you make, by the way? So his attorney, Lauro, has said something about how like, oh, it's going to take years before we can go to trial on this. Do you think it's going to be years before this thing can go to trial? Nope. As we've talked about with regard to Judge Cannon, someone in the other direction, um, federal district judges retain an awful lot of control over the calendaring of their proceedings. And that includes the ability to move pretty quickly. Um, you know, Bobby, criminal defendants have a right to a speedy trial. They don't have a right to a you slow know trial. slow trial. <laughs> That's true. So I would think then that what we can expect to see will be maneuvers designed to create the possibility of interlocutory issues. Yes. And yeah. So, so like a, a motion of- to dismiss the indictment based on Nixon versus Fitzgerald, for example, which is going to lose, right? Which might nevertheless be, you know, sort of framed as the basis for an interlocutory appeal. Right. And they'll try, they'll try to do this in seriatim and we'll, we'll see how well the judge can constrain that. Um, one defense and, 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 and the DC circuit. Absolutely. And, and then it gets really interesting. Like, so then you're like, oh, let's go on back. Okay, now let's take it to the Supreme Court. And each time something goes up, even if it gets rebuffed and doesn't get heard at a higher level, it's still the passage of time. Oh, that was Maddie coming into. Maddie has been, has hey, been Maddie. working and she's now here to say hi. Say hi to Maddie, everybody. Can you say hi to everybody? Okay. <laughs> and that, that cameo was brought to you by Maddie Vladek. <laughs> Well, so another defense we're going to hear a lot about, of course, will be, and we've already been told this by uh, uh, the attorney, Lauro, uh, advice of counsel, right? There's going to be a lot. Of, eventually, the defense may end up being, look, I guess I guess it turns out this Eastman guy and this Giuliani guy, they were crazy. I didn't know. I didn't know how crazy they were going with this. They always told me they had the goods. I just, I had to trust them. I mean, that that's the natural lane for the defense to flow down. So there will be a lot of talk about advice of counsel as a form of defense, um, my understanding, Steve, is that you know, advice of counsel can work either, either in some jurisdictions. I think it's treated as an affirmative defense where the defendant has the burden. In other cases, it's just a way of trying to negate the mens rea and to undermine the prosecution's attempt to meet its burden. But either way, my understanding is that to reap the benefits, especially if you want a jury instruction, and that's really maybe the key thing. If you want the judge to instruct the jury in its deliberations, that it may find that the defendant was in good faith following the advice of counsel. Um, one of the necessary conditions for that to work in at least some jurisdictions is, is complete and full disclosure of all the material facts to the attorney uh, before they gave their, uh, they gave their advice. And if part of what's going on is uh, the circulation of, of known false information, I think it then becomes kind of hard to make the actual advice of counsel defense stick. So we'll see. We'll see how that turns out. Um, I don't know if there are any other defenses we're likely to see that are sort of nameable defenses. Do you have anything else? I mean, there's stuff that could come up. I mean, if there's any kind of if there, you know, if he wants to try to sort of fight over some kind of Brady issue about the prosecution not turning over potentially exculpatory evidence. I, you know, I'm sure that everything under the sun will come out eventually, but that's sort of stuff that comes later. Yep. All right. So buckle up, folks. There you go. That's your your sort of breakdown. It's uh, we'll see. Um, you know, can we, these other things? I, it might make more sense. I, so given that I have two kids who you can now hear in the background crawling on each other. Put a pen in I respectfully right move that we, that we abate our conversation of both Al Shamari and Al Balul 
and the Law of War manual to next week when we'll both be in Austin and we'll be in the office and I won't have children climbing on me as we try to record this. So ordered. <laughs> All right. Um, so on that note, y'all, we will also come up with some frivolity that isn't about the Mets and maybe I'll have seen Barbie by then. That's um, a job. That's a, hey, girls, hey, you want to go see Barbie? Yeah. All right, then stop <laughs> harassing me so Bobby and I can finish this podcast. Guys, would y'all rather watch Oppenheimer? Those are my children in the background. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. He is at Bobby Chesney. We are at SL Podcast. Stay safe out there because I'm not. Oh, yes. Okay, wait, I got to stop this. <laughs>